You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Um, just to echo what Reed said, thank you, thank you. Tremendous uh, for everybody coming out yesterday and serving. We had a great time together and um, really, really impacted our community. Um, just to share with you, I had an opportunity for about five minutes to talk to um, Peter, the guy who um, oversees all of those kind of tasks and responsibilities. That was his name, right? That's what I said, Rodney. Uh, very similar. Um, does this for the city of Huntsville, and uh, the guy's just talking to me, big, big dude, tears coming down his eyes, just because he loves not only serving our community, but seeing the church um, mobilized for the sake of helping people. So again, thank you. It was a great day. Um, we all have days in our life that um, inherently, because of what happens on those days, they have some significance uh, they hold a special place for us. Um, you can probably think of a few of those. Um, <clears throat> one in particular that I think about is graduation day. Um, some of you in the room right now, it's just this thing, it's on the horizon and like, oh, I can almost taste it. I remember high school graduation day very, very, very vividly. Um, I had a graduating class of 675 people. That's what happens when you grow up in the Metroplex in Texas. Uh, if you don't believe them when they say everything's bigger in Texas, you actually should. Everything is bigger, including graduating classes. Um, but I remember a lot about that day, um, specifically how I felt. Like, glory, hallelujah. Um, no more homework. No more reading. No more teachers telling me what to do. Um, it almost sounds like a song or something, you know, like college wasn't two and a half months later. Uh, and man, was that like a brick upside my head? Um, do not think I was prepared for that, but I look back and out of the 675, I remember that there were some other uh, classmates and friends who they were excited about the day as well, but I think it was for other reasons. Like they understood the significance of the day. Like they understood this is about celebrating the culmination of all of this that I've worked for. And it's about ending this season because this next one's going to be even better. And what I think I've realized in retrospect is that the people who appreciate and value the significance of that day are the ones who understand the significance, who get what this is all about. Election day is coming up here pretty soon. Um, and I realize that with the ridiculous circus show that the presidential election has become, these in-betweener things, they seem like, well, that's no big deal or whatever. Here's the thing. Um, as an American, let's just talk as an American here for a moment. As a person in a country with freedom, there is great significance every time that you and I have the opportunity to go in and speak through voting. And what I have found is, you know, on election day, um, if you get annoyed with people posting the picture of their I voted sticker, maybe it's because you didn't. But the people who really, really value and appreciate that day are the ones who understand not only the significance of the privilege and responsibility, but they understand the price that was paid in order for them to even have that privilege. So, 
Election day is one of those too. How about a wedding day? Pretty big deal. Um, we were last weekend at a family wedding, and uh, it got me kind of thinking. I was literally trying to go back and count how many weddings have I actually performed. Uh, I have actually lost track somewhere like over the hundred hump now, but I thought I'd share this with you. I don't know if you're aware of this. There are weddings people actually don't want to go to. Did you know that? There are, I've witnessed it. I've seen it on people's faces. More so though, I've seen weddings where people are so grateful to be there and to be a part of it and, and to, to, to witness the celebration because the bride and groom very, very evidently understand the significance of the day. But more importantly, you can tell that they understand that all the days after it are even more important. That's the wedding that you actually want to attend and be a part of. So there are these days, and you know, whether it's the birth of your children or your grandchildren or other days in life that they hold this special place of significance. Well, this morning as we wrap up Peter's second letter, what we're going to see Peter, the former fisherman, the follower and disciple of Jesus, the one who denied him but was restored, the one that God used to ignite the fire of the New Testament church, Peter says all those days pale in comparison to the coming of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. Jesus is going to return. Do you realize that if Jesus doesn't return, it doesn't really matter that he came in the first place? If he's not coming back to restore us and to restore all things and make all things new and bring heaven to earth, it doesn't really matter. But he is. The day of the Lord is coming. Jesus will return. He will return for his people. He said, when I return, I will separate the sheep from the goats. He said that when I return, it will be in the blink of an eye. You won't even see it coming. There will be those that try and tell you it's coming. Well, don't listen to him because not even I know. Only the Father knows. And Jesus said, I will come and I will make all things new. The ones who appreciate and value that day, the ones who uh, will be prepared for that day, who anticipate, live in anticipation and expectation of that day, are the ones who understand the eternal significance of that day and understand the price that was paid that you and I can even live in the hope that it's coming. So let's take a look together. Second Peter chapter 3. The day of the Lord. If you're using the Bible app this morning, you can go to events and find the brook and the sermon will be right there. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Peter says, This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets 
and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So stop right there for a moment. Peter, addressing the, those he's writing to, those who have been scattered from the church, he is saying, if you're a follower of Christ, remember that you have the scriptures. Peter wouldn't have said Old Testament because Old Testament wasn't actually even a term at this point. He would have said, you have the scriptures and you know that through the prophets, just list them all, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, through all these prophets, God said, here is what I'm going to do through the Messiah and God has done it. God spoke through the prophets. The prophets prophesied. Look at how the Lord fulfilled those prophecies. And then, in fulfilling those prophecies, he came. And the Lord gave us, Jesus gave us clear instructions on how we're not only to live our lives, but now he's given us the Spirit to guide us in that truth. And Peter starts this closing of this letter by saying that you and I, our minds need to be constantly stirred up by these truths. And now he gives us one of the reasons why. Verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're going to come and they're going to say, look, look how much time has passed. Jesus said he was coming, but if he hasn't come by now, then he's not coming at all. Nothing's going to change. Verse 5. Peter says, they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Peter tells us that false prophets are going to come. There are going to be people who come and they're going to try and predict this is when Jesus is coming. Regardless of the fact that false prophets have already come and they've said this is when Jesus is coming and it didn't work out the way that they said it would, there are going to be more that come and they're going to try to tell you. Whether it's because they want glory and attention whether it's because they're impatient or whatever the motive is, they're going to come and they're going to try and tell us exactly when he's returning. Don't listen to them. In fact, mark down the day and time that they say and bank, it won't be then. But then Peter says, but on the other side of things, scoffers, scoffers will come. And I love what Peter says here. He says that scoffers will come scoffing. Like, yes, heads up there, Peter. That's what scoffers do. They're going to come and they're going to be scoffing and they're going to say, it's not that we're going to tell you when Jesus is coming. We got bad news for you. He's not coming at all. He's hung us out to dry. But notice what he says. Scoffers will come in their scoffing, following their own sinful desires. There is a motive for this scoffing, if you will. 
they'll say Jesus isn't going to return, and here's why. They don't want him to. And the reason for that is focusing, anticipating the Lord's return and walking and living in blatant sin, those things don't go well together. Let let me put it to you this way. Um, Let's say there's a young man and his parents are going out of town. And what's crazy, I've used this illustration a few times over the last few weeks. And I don't know if God's maybe trying to tell one of you kids thinking about throwing a party. Think again. I don't know, but we'll just leave that to the Holy Spirit. But let's say that somebody tries to throw a party. Mom and dad are gone and the house is destroyed and people get in trouble and there's flashing lights out front. Bad, bad news for everybody. Who's the last person on earth that wants mom and dad to come home, especially early? Why? Because anticipating mom and dad's return and walking and living in blatant sin and disobedience, those don't go very well together. Living a life of anticipation and expectation and hope of the Lord returning and walking in sin and disobedience toward him, those things don't mix Peter says, those are the scoffers. Run away from them. Don't buy into the false prophets or the scoffers' impatience. What that impatience will lead to, what that impatience comes from, is this desire for immediate gratification. And if you begin to be impatient with the Lord because you think things work on your timetable and not his, what's going to happen is you're going to wander off. Peter says, come back, come back. And he addresses this issue of ignorance. One of the reasons that people wander off is that they can't equivocate everything in their human mind. One thing in in this scripture specifically, the amount of time, earthly time, that passes, do you understand that that's of no consequence to God? Like you and I, I mean, we look back over weeks and days or our whole life and we're like, wow. And for God, it's like that's half of a breath. In Genesis chapter 1, we believe um, not just because we recklessly, blindly believe it, but because there are many, many justifiable reasons to believe that when we see that God created the heavens and the earth and that was the first day, that it was literally a day like you and I experience. But the point being, the use of the word day in Genesis chapter 1, actually meaning a day, has absolutely no contradiction with Peter saying that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Again, Peter's not even talking on our terms. He's saying time is inconsequential to God. So don't get hung up on what your watch is telling you or your calendar says. For us to demand or even insinuate that God should operate on our timetable, that's ignorance at best. It's heretical foolishness at worst. Look with me for a moment in Psalm 90. I want to take a look at one thing that Moses says in this regard. And if you've been here walking with us through Exodus, you'll see um, how in context this is with what Moses is experiencing. 
But look at Psalm 90. Let's just look at the first four verses. He begins, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Do you, do you get that the, even the idea of from everlasting to everlasting? I can't wrap my head around that. We don't even get that. Moses says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. And now look at this, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. Don't be ignorant in thinking that God operates on our timetable. The false prophets will come. They'll try to predict. The scoffers will come. They'll say, it's not happening. The ignorant will question. But Peter is saying to us, the day of the Lord, it will come. But what is prompting Peter to even write this, what's prompting it is the question of someone saying or someone saying, okay, great, we get it, we believe it. But what is God waiting for? What's the delay? God, are you paying attention? Like our world's going to hell in a handbasket. That's the way we feel at times. What's God waiting on? Verse 8. Let's read this again. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. He's patient on account of you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What is the Lord waiting for? Plain and simple. He is waiting for the lost to be found. He's waiting for the prodigal to come home. God is waiting for every last living, breathing soul who occupies this planet to have the opportunity to hear the good news of the gospel of what his son has accomplished on their behalf. Look at Matthew twenty four fourteen. This is what Jesus has already said. In Matthew 24, 14, Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives looking out over the valley with his disciples. The temple is right there in view. And Jesus is talking about the end. And he says in verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Friends, God's desire for people is not destruction, but salvation. God's desire for the people that you and I work with, for the people that we see um, 
living in other countries in destitute poverty. God's desire for people who so desperately want out of being um, persecuted. They're literally trying to walk to another country. God's desire for people is not condemnation or, or, or destruction. It is salvation. The question that you and I have got to wrestle with is, is that our desire? Let me stop for a minute, and this is really dangerous when I do this, because this is not in my notes or prepared. But I got to tell you one thing that chaps my butt. God is bringing the nations to our doorstep because we refuse to go to them. And we are hell bent on keeping them out. I don't know, but we got to think through this, friends. We're living in fear of what might happen. There is no fear through the power of the Spirit. None. True love drives out all fear. Coming back, look at John chapter 3, verse 16. Forgive me for saying but, um, but if that is the thing that upsets you today in this sermon, then we have much, much bigger issues. In John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus says to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Stop for a minute, and I want you to think about what Jesus said right here in just a little bit different terminology, because this is actually fair translation of what Jesus says. He says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, this is how my father loved the world. He sent his son. This is how God has loved the world. He has sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Why would God send his Son into the world to condemn the world? Friends, the world is condemned already. You and I entered this place with our hearts set against God. Jesus has come to bring salvation. Romans chapter 10. Let's look at what Paul says. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But now Paul asks some questions that he expects us to think through. But how will they call on him to be saved if they haven't believed in him? And how will they believe in him if they haven't heard the hope of the gospel? And how are they even going to hear the good news of the gospel if no one tells them, if no one preaches, if no one speaks it? And how is anybody ever going to preach it or speak it if no one is sent? So Peter said, Paul says, great news, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. However, 
They're not going to be saved if they don't believe, and they're not going to believe if they don't hear, and they're not going to hear if no one tells them, and no one's going to tell them if no one's been sent. Well, praise God, I have great news for you today. Someone has been sent. You and me. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus says to his disciples, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Peter, James, John, Steve, Brian, Sarah, all of you, go and make disciples. And then he kind of does a rerun with them right before he ascends back to the Father in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, and he says, you will be my witnesses. And yes, it will be in India and in Guatemala. But first, it will be right here at home. Jesus said, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Go and make disciples. Go and be my witnesses. Friends, we need to ask ourselves, is my posture toward the lost the same as that of my father? Is our attitude toward the lost the same attitude that our Savior has? Jesus made his attitude very, very plain, very, very clear. One example, Luke 19. Jesus, at about the 800th time of risking his reputation, Jesus goes home with that short guy, Zacchaeus. And he calls everybody out on it. Why are you going home with the tax collector? We don't like him. And Jesus interrupts their great day and says, well, here's the deal. I've actually come to seek and save those who are lost. So if we want to understand Jesus' attitude toward the lost, he says, I'm going home with them. They need hope. That's me. So here I come. Friends, we are either broken for the lost or we are judgmental toward the lost. And there's really not like a fence that we get to sit on and, and like, I'm kind of both. No, you're not actually. I'm not either. Our hearts are either broken for the lost or we are indifferent, apathetic, judgmental toward the lost. There are people on this earth right now that somehow, some way within us, something has happened and we've really convinced ourselves, well, they don't deserve to be saved. And just know this, you're actually correct, but neither do you and neither do I. We need the posture, the attitude of our Lord and Savior. Look with me for a moment in Luke chapter 15. In Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables. And if you have read the Bible or you've been in church for any length of time, it's good probability that you've heard these three parables. Jesus begins with the parable of the lost sheep. And he, he says that, Look, this is how the father looks at the lost. This is how I view those who are far away from me. I will leave the 99 and go look for the one that wandered off. And then Jesus tells the parable of the lost coin. Take a look at this one with me. Luke 15, verse 8. And I have to tell you that 
this week, this crossed my mind. He, Jesus begins, what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? I'm, I'm reading this parable and I'm going, Jesus knew that this needed to be a woman. First of all, because like my wife has to take care of the money in our house because I don't have a clue. Um, also, who's going to be the one to be able to find anything in my house? My wife is, not me. So Jesus knew exactly what he's talking about here. This lady, she's got 10 silver coins and she loses one, but she stops everything and she seeks diligently to find it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Notice something. The lady didn't get mad at the coin. Stupid coin. The lady didn't sit in judgment. Well, serves it right. That coin got itself lost. No, there was none of that. She stops everything that she's doing and she wrecks her house in order to find it. And then when she finds it, she throws a party to celebrate. I've found my coin. And Jesus is saying, this is the attitude of my father toward the loss. And I don't know if you took notice of this, but if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have surrendered your life to him, when you did, heaven stopped and a celebration occurred. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's worth partying over. Then Jesus moves into the parable of the prodigal son. And you probably know this parable. There's a a wealthy father. He has two sons. And the younger one comes and says, Hey, Dad, I want my inheritance. I'm out of here. And so the dad, with a broken heart, obliges his son. And he leaves. And he heads for the city. And he parties it up. He lives like big time and he blows it all. And it says, we want to say that he got a job feeding pigs, but the reality of what Jesus told us here, all that we really know is that this young man got so desperate that he envied the pigs and what they were eating. I don't know how you get lower than that but this guy's on hard times. And so he's beginning to realize, I think there's only one place for me to go. But meanwhile, we, you know, we don't know weeks, months, however long this guy was gone. What's dad at home doing? Jesus says that the father is at home with his eyes on the road. He's constantly watching for his lost son. And it tells us that when he sees him way off in the distance, that he runs to him. Meanwhile, younger brother comes home. Older brother, I've always done what dad told me. I've always been faithful. 
I've worked my hands to the bone. Why is dad throwing a party for doofus? Why is dad celebrating him coming back? He should have just left him there. A couple of things for you and I to consider. Let's, let's rethink this. How do you think the father would have felt if he woke up one day and he couldn't find his older son? And he searched the whole house for his older son. And finally he found one of his workers and he said, I can't find my, my son. And he said, well, you don't know? He got up in the middle of the night, packed his bag, and he went looking for his little brother. What do you think that would have done to the father? I will tell you that as a parent, short of my children making the decision to follow Jesus Christ, the the greatest thing that I witness with my eyeballs uh, go on in my family is when I see my two kids love each other. And I know that some of you out there who are younger parents right now, you're going, that happens? It, it does. It will. There's like nothing more beautiful to witness. Um, think about how the father would have felt. But now let's go back to the reality of the story and think about this. Do you have, you, have, you think that the prodigal son, do you think that the rebellious runaway sinner son had any idea how his self-righteous judgmental big brother felt about him? I'm going to say he probably did. Maybe a more important question is, does it matter? Peter says that it does. Back to second Peter. Verse 11 Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since all these things are going to come to fruition, what sort of people ought you and I to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And how is it that you and I hasten the coming of the day of God? Jesus told us, by taking and proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth, that when that gospel has gone out to the whole world, then the end will come. What sort of people ought we to be? Living in anticipation, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise... We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Peter says that you and I are to be living in eager anticipation of that day and that we are to be found by our Savior without spot or blemish. Does this mean that 
we're going to be perfect. Does this mean that when Jesus comes, we should be found keeping all the rules? No, I think we're aware by now that he came because you and I could never be perfect on our own. We couldn't keep all the rules. Our justification, Jesus has completely atoned for our sin. He's accomplished this for us. So what does Peter mean that we're to be found without spot or blemish? What he means is that we're to be found, we're to be living lives in eager expectation of Christ's return. We're to be obeying what he's commanded us to do, seeking out the lost, faithfully sharing the hope of the gospel. Jesus says, I want to find my people about my business. I want to, when I come, they understand that this has all taken place because their lives have hastened the coming of this day. Verse 17. Therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, now that you know this and understand this, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. We are called to take the light into the darkness, but be ready. Stand on the word. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Friends, the ones who most appreciate and value this day, the ones who will be prepared, the ones who are anticipating the coming of this day are the ones who understand the eternal significance that Jesus is returning and understand the price that was paid so that we can live in the hope of knowing that it is coming. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.